The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ibarri X, and this is The Candid Frame. In today's world, we've been convinced that the newest and shiniest things are better that acquiring those things will make us happy. And while there's no doubt that we can experience that momentary rush of satisfaction when getting that new thing, in a short amount of time, that enthusiasm diminishes. And we're on to the next thing. Because we've been convinced that happiness, satisfaction, and joy are just a purchase away. Christina Minnemeyer's work with indigenous people, however, has taught her that we human beings need very little to really enjoy life. With our basic needs for food, water, and shelter met, what we really need to bring us happiness involves family, community, laughter, things that can't be shrink-wrapped in plastic and left to hang on a retail store shelf. But even these basic needs are being threatened not only for indigenous people, but for people living in the industrial world, and life is just getting that much more complicated. Climate change, decreasing essential resources, especially water, are changing the way that people and animals all over the world live and survive. Christina's work as a photographer has told stories that are often just headlines to many of us and go further to make them into very personal stories that can and are making a big difference. Well, Christina, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have the chance to, to speak with you. I want to get started with, with, your, with your beginnings. You grew up in, in Mexico, two professional uh, parents. And I, I'd like to start off with you telling me about the woman that helped raise you. You had a nanny who really made an impact and a difference in your life. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about her and why she had such an influence in your life? Yes, um Mexico is an interesting country because we still have a very, very large population of indigenous people from many, many different ethnic groups, and most of them are still living in poverty. Uh, so it's customary in Mexico to hire a lot of um, house help, you know, cleaning ladies, nannies, cooks, that kind of thing, and a lot of them have this indigenous background. So my mother was a uh, a professional. She's a PhD psychologist and she was very, very busy. And she also had five children. So we had a, a cook and we had a cleaning lady and we also had this woman who was a nanny. And she, her name is Alejandra and she was one of nine children, lived in a very, very humble uh, home with her mother. And she commuted to stay with us for months at a time. She was from uh, the Otomi uh, language group. And although she never really spoke her language to us, I know that she spoke it at home. And what I learned from her was uh, just to see the world in a different way. I think people that are raised uh, within indigenous cultures 
have this very bright and colorful and also very laden with superstition and stories, uh, the, the way that they're brought up. And so she brought all of that into our lives. You know, just a, a, a very liberating way to allow a child to be artistic, to be funny, to tell stories, to be a little fearless with creativity. And so she was a very gentle, warm person, and she was an amazing cook. So today, when I can make a beautiful Mexican meal, I know that I have her to thank. Mm. Uh, because she was always very wonderful in terms of sharing what she knew about, you know, just how the diversity of spices and flavors and just how colorful Mexican culture is. I, I learned a lot of that from her. And she was with our family. She worked for us for 25 years. And by the time I left for university, she was still there. And then she met somebody and got married and left. Mm. She was in her 50s already. (laughs) I hear my mom still stays. She stays in touch with her and she visits often and she's still happily married. Oh, that's nice. Nice. Yeah. A lovely woman, really. When do you you think you started to have an awareness that the indigenous people were, were treated differently? You know, it was not until I left Mexico. It's amazing when you live within a society that has certain points of view on people uh, that you become part of that culture. You're not even aware that somebody's being treated unfairly or differently or somebody's not being given the same opportunities. And you certainly are not aware of how much culture and tradition mean to other people. Mm -hmm. So when I moved to the United States and I was able to look back at Mexico with a different lens is when I really started understanding just how incredible, how what a gift it is for a country like Mexico to have this diversity of cultures, languages, traditions, uh, rituals. And I became fascinated by it. And I became a little embarrassed too because I have never had the opportunity to really create a body of work in my own country. It's all, it all seems to be always the case that in your own backyard, you're, you have the most difficulty in being able to see it just because you're immersed in it all the time. Absolutely. And so by the time I became a, a photographer, you know, with a real interest in documenting indigenous life, it is, it's, it's now too dangerous to travel to some of the places that I would love to go and photograph. You got a degree in, in marine biology. How, where did you develop that interest? <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in a mountain town, very far away from the ocean. And even though I've always loved the ocean, it was not until my, f- what is it, my last year of high school, uh, somebody came to speak at our school about uh, career opportunities. And he made a presentation and he had all these photographs of students working in the ocean and, you know, swimming and doing laboratory work and going on boats and making a difference in conservation. And I became hooked. And I was, you know, I think it was the visuals that really attracted me to the idea of being a marine biologist. But it was just this whole romance of living in the sea and, you know, being in the water. And so my my dad wanted me to be an accountant, uh, somebody with a real career. (laughs) And it was my mother who who really championed me allowed me to move very, very far away from home to pursue this career in marine biology. Well, how was that cultural shift for you, you know, from being in, in Mexico and being in the United States? And how was that experience in terms of transitioning for you? And, and how do you think it, it, it changed you and influenced you? 
I, I went to university in Mexico, but, but in northern Mexico, in a very small town that is mostly a fishing community. And I think the biggest problem for me was moving away from a home where I was really sheltered with all these nannies and cooks and now having to live very far away from my siblings, my parents, and, um, and having to fend for myself. I remember being in my you know, late teens and not knowing how to fry an egg just because I never had the opportunity to do it on my own. Mm. When I finished university and I married and I moved to the United States, that was a real cultural, cultural shock for me. And it took me years to assimilate into American culture, really. When you started doing your work in marine biology, it wasn't uh, in the role as a, a photographer. You were more of a researcher and, and, and a practitioner of that. How did photography start infusing its way into what you were doing? You know, it's one of those questions that I keep asking myself. And, you know, some of us care deeply about nature and about our planet. And I don't know where it comes from because I come from a family of five children and we were all raised the same way. And it's not that my siblings don't care. I mean, they love nature, but they don't have this concern that I've always had about what, what happens to the fellow species that share the planet with us. So a huge part of me... When, when I went into school and started, started studying marine biology, it was, I was interested in the biology of things. I was interested in the science of things. But the bigger concern for me was, you know, how do we preserve it? Uh, seeing how fishing is done in, on an industrial scale for me was always very apparent that it's very exploitative and it's very unsustainable. So I always wanted to do something in conservation. And my first instinct was to do it through science. And so the first few jobs that I pursued when I came out of university were all, you know, trying to share the arguments, the scientific uh, data for why these marvelous gifts that we have in nature needs to be preserved. But it didn't take me long to realize that the scientific community is very enclosed in its own bubble. They speak their own language and whatever data they share really is lost to the general audiences. Uh, people in general don't understand these things, and there's certainly no emotional connection. And it was through an accident that I started taking pictures, just carrying somebody else's camera, and I saw the reaction that people have to imagery, and especially when it's co accompanied by beautiful, emotional, well-written text. And I thought, well, maybe there's something there. And, you know, I've, I've always had this creative vein. I've always been artistic and wanted to pursue that, and all of a sudden it became this great avenue to allow my artistic expression to come out through photography and at the same time have it accompany this concern and this message that I had for the natural world. Can you, can you point back to uh, a particular body of work that you saw that allowed you to realize the, the power that photography had to be able to communicate that message of conservation and, and, and the perils that were happening in the natural world? You know, I, unlike a lot of my colleagues in the photography world in, in Mexico, we really didn't have this huge tradition of photography when I was growing up, even though we have some amazing photographers. So the names that I was hearing when I was, when I was much younger were people like uh, Graciela Iturbide, who specializes on indigenous people. And she has a beautiful body of work from remote corners of Mexico, uh, done in black and white. Or Manuel um, Alvarez Bravo, who's a master of photography in Mexico. But there was nobody really doing uh, nature photography until I met a man named Patricio Robles Gil. And this is precisely what he was doing. 
So the moment for me was because when I was doing the scientific work for conservation, we were sharing office space with this man, with Patricio. And he was engaged in doing his own photography. And he was printing these beautiful coffee table books. And so just by sharing a space with this person, I became enamored with photography uh, and started learning about who the people in this community of professionals dedicated to nature photography were. Uh, and so that's how I got started, really. It was an accident. And I, I began to understand that it's, n- it's not just a great tool for communicating with uh, general audiences. But what he was doing, what Patricia was doing, was he was engaging corporations in the natural world by producing corporate materials in nature photography. So coffee table books, calendars for these huge corporations uh, that were sharing them with their stakeholders. So, for example, Ford Motor Company would do a beautiful calendar all with animals or whatever forest scenes and send it to thousands of people with their logo. Um, So I started understanding better that that nature photography is just a great little keyhole that you can use to bring audiences into this conservation conversation. Can you give me an example of of a body of work that you had started early on in which you felt you effectively were able to communicate, you know, the concerns that you had, you know, that you had a complete understanding of scientifically and culturally, but whose photographs that you created allowed you to be able to communicate communicate something that otherwise you would have struggled to? Yeah, I, I think the... the the funnier set segue into that conversation is I wanted to be a wildlife photographer. I really am attracted to animals. And so that's where I started trying to make photographs. And as you know, there are so many incredibly talented photographers dedicated to wildlife that I was finding it hard, difficult to create a body of work that was different and engaging. And it was at the same time, because I was a young mother and I had to travel with my children to many of the places where I was working, that I started realizing, you know, that there's this whole interaction between the people that live near nature, a lot of them indigenous and very remote rural communities, and the ecosystems that I was trying to preserve. And so I had my children with me, and just by virtue of being accompanied by young children, I was invited into these communities. You know, I think people everywhere love babies, love young children. And so all of a sudden I found myself in the homes of people and, you know, having access to their intimate lives. And I started taking photographs of that. And I realized, Ibarionics, it's so funny when you first start looking at your work that not only touches you as an artist emotionally, but the reaction that you're, that the people that are viewing your photographs also have to the work. And I had an aha moment, you know, I really should be taking pictures of people and not just wildlife. And uh, those early photographic attempts were also accompanied by the opportunity to work with Conservation International, which is a large foundation dedicated to preserving biodiversity, but whose mission also includes the well-being of human communities. And so all of a sudden I found a home for my work and I found an audience for my message and I found the information and the platform I needed to make my work really relevant to the kind of messages I was interested in in putting out. It was luck. Yeah. T- tell me about the relationship that you developed with the, with the Kayapo. How did that begin? It was also through Conservation International. Um, they have very, very large 
projects that deal with uh, trying to prevent deforestation in the Amazon and trying to, you know, try to uh, give alternatives, economic alternatives to very remote communities. And so it was like, you know, in such a way that I first was invited to go to one of the very, very remote villages where the Kayapo people live. There was somebody working um, with Conservation International, a Canadian uh, scientist, Dr. Barbara Zimmerman, and she was doing she was doing work with uh, deforestation and mahogany when she first came upon this tribe. And it's not that they were uncontacted; they've been contacted for many, many years. But they had a deal a deal with uh, logging companies where they were selling part of their territory. Uh, it was basically giving access to logging interest in exchange for money and they didn't want to do that because they depend on the forest and so Barbara Zimmerman was helping them imagine a different future with alternative economies so instead of selling the trees maybe they could be helping scientists they could be building some tourism opportunities and so she invited me to come and I was very very young I was uh, only 24 years old I was pregnant with my first child the first time I visited one of these villages and I was completely blown away and it's not because they were very traditional and, you know, they still live a very remote, detached from Western influence type of existence. It's because they want to, you know, they know that there's this whole Western world of appliances and conveniences, but they choose to live the way they do. And they're very proud of their traditions. And so I was just very attracted to that determination of a people to live the way they want to live. And that's how I first met them. And, and give us a little background on, on, on the Kayapo. They, are, uh, they live along the Amazon in, in Brazil, but can you tell our listeners a little more uh, about their community? Yes, there's, um, there's a lot of indigenous communities in the Amazon, and uh, the Kayapo are just one of many. They live in the southern state of Pará, which is the southeastern corner of the Amazon. And they live in a place called the Xingu Indigenous Territory, and that was a big block of land that was given to them um, by the Brazilian government, and they shared with other indigenous tribes. Um, the Kayapo, there's about between five and 7,000 people that you know, would be called Kayapo, and that's a linguistic distinction. And they live in an area that's about the size of the state of New York, that's their territory. And they are the stewards of that land, and they that's the land that they have available to them to make a living. So they are hunters and they're fishermen, and they collect a lot of, uh, you know, foods and medicines and building materials from the forest. So they really are invested in protecting uh, the rainforest where they live. Interestingly, all around their territory, you see all these other influences. So when you fly in, you fly over hundreds of hectares of agricultural plantations and cattle is a huge industry in Brazil. So you see huge plots of forest that have been cleared for cattle pasture and you see a lot of mining going on. And it, the, the, if you look at a satellite image of the Kayapo territory, you will notice, you know, that where they live, everything is covered in forest, but all around them, the entire perimeter of their territory has been completely annihilated by deforestation. And so they're very invested in protecting the resource that gives them a livelihood. And that makes them very, very interesting because they are warriors. And, you know, they've been fighting intrusions into their land with machetes and war clubs. But more and more, they're facing huge industrial interests that are completely out of their control. Uh, for example, this huge dam that was approved just outside of their territory. So they don't really have any 
say in the construction of the dam. Uh, but the, the, the dam really affects the river. That's the livelihood for these people. Yeah, because it's the only means of travel that they have. Yeah, I mean, the, the river gives them everything. Uh, the, the, these people depend on, on the fish and, of course, the water from the river, but also navigation. There's no roads. So if you want to go in or out, you have to travel by river. And if, if the dam all of a sudden cuts the flow of water, a lot of people are going to be just isolated and they're going to have to relocate. And, and you've spoken that the idea of, of your photography was about putting a face to that because people hear about deforestation, they hear about, you know, the, the destruction of the rainforest, and there's a, a sort of a detachment that most people can have when they hear about things like that. They don't, they don't relate it to anything influencing people's lives as, except in the abstract. You said many times that photography allows you to be able to make it a personal issue. Can can you speak to that? Yes, I, I've always felt very strongly. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very privileged. I'm very, very grateful for the access that people like the Kayapo have given me into their lives. And I feel a huge responsibility of bringing their story out to the world. Because I feel that on so many levels, their struggle is almost like a secret struggle. You know, it, it never appears in the news. Uh, media doesn't pay any attention to what might be happening to these remote people. And like you said, when we hear about things like, oh, there's a dam that's being built in the Amazon, it's such an abstract concept that you really don't know how to react emotionally. So I've, I've always felt that like my job is to put a face and an emotion to these places. And so I've spent time uh, photographing just how these people live, how much they depend on the natural resources around them, and just how worried and concerned they are. It's not that they're just angry about these things that are coming like an avalanche of civilization on, on to their very remote communities. They're terrified, and they don't know what they're going to be doing in the future. They certainly don't have the type of education that would allow them to move into a city and get a job. Mm -hmm. They don't really have an understanding of how political systems and economies outside in the outside world uh, work or they can insert themselves and they are worried. And so I spend a lot of time with the women and with the children because they're the most vulnerable ones. And I feel like people really connect to this idea of families that are going to be uh, losing their livelihood, they're going to be faced uh, with poverty and, you know, just deculturalized, I guess. Yeah, and I've read and I've seen that they've been very proactive in being able to use technology, specifically photography and video, to be able to share their own storage, which I think is really remarkable. <laughs> yes. So when, when you go to these villages, uh, there is a lot of Western technology there. Uh, what I love about indigenous people today is that it's not their clothing or their cameras or their iPhones that matter. You know, the culture is something that, that's internal to people. It's your language. It's the, the way that you believe in the world, your spiritual beliefs or whatever. But yes, the Kayapo are very, very savvy when it comes to technology. Many of them are little filmmakers. They have cameras and they are connected to the internet and they are using this technology to record what's happening to them and to hold the government accountable for, for the promises that they make and for the promises that they break. And uh, I mean, I find that that's a beautiful use of technology. You did a presentation at uh, a Ted Vale in which you talk about enoughness and that was derived from your observations of indigenous people and what it takes for them to be content, to be happy. Can tell me about how you began to realize that there was 
very little that people actually needed in order to be happy and having more than what they needed was where a lot of grief, unhappiness, and trouble can arise from. You know, it was the contrast between living in the United States where we are surrounded constantly by this marketing machine that's telling us, you know, that the, the only way to be happy is by buying more. You know, you will only be happy if you get that new pair of shoes or if you take advantage of the sale or if you upgrade your car. And the truth of the matter is, you know, these are very short-term moments of elation that are quickly replaced with the need for something more. When you go to, to remote places that most people, you know, I've traveled with, uh, with other people to these communities, and one of the first reactions they have is like, oh, my God, they're so poor. And they think they're poor because they don't have a TV or they don't have a washing machine or they don't have shoes. But it, it, it matters how we define poverty. And poverty is not the absence of stuff. It's the desire for things that you cannot have. That's what makes you poor. So for a lot of the, of the people that live in these remote places, they truly have everything they need. They, they have the river that provides food and water and, you know, having shelter, having a home where they can take shelter and have a little fire, that, all that matters. But also having a community that, that lifts you up and being surrounded by your own language and your own traditions, certainly the power of ritual and spirituality and just being I don't know. I'm always amazed, Ivarionis, at how, pe how people in these remote places are so happy. You know, they laugh so much and they have such a great sense of humor. And that's when it started occurring to me, you know. Enoughness is just an internal metric that allows you to be content with just enough. And it's a determination that we each make for ourselves. So when I started thinking about enoughness, I would go out and be tempted by all these shopping opportunities. And so I have to ask myself, do I really need a new pair of boots when I have three perfectly good pairs at home? And the answer is no. And, and so I think it's one of the answers to a more sustainable future if we all start practicing a little more enoughness and just asking ourselves, do I have enough? Yeah. The beauty of a great website is the ability to make it your own. You and your work are unique and deserve a site that's customized to who you are and what you love to create. And the great thing with Squarespace is that they make it so easy for you to begin with a great, beautiful template and make it your own. Now is an exciting time to do just that because Squarespace has released five new magazine style templates. How it's Pharaoh, Tudor, Sky, and Foundry. These templates don't make your website look like a dead end, but rather a resource that people are excited to explore and discover. Take a look at these designs and you'll see how they can make a huge difference in how people see and experience your work. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about in, in, in reading and researching, you know, before our conversation was this idea is that there are so much, there are so many threats to many indigenous people's livelihood, their way of life, because you know, of climate change, because of encroachment, because of industrial businesses like mining and, and deforestation. 
And in some ways, I can see people thinking, well, you know, yeah, they're losing that. But, you know, if you give them an education, they'll be able to have the lives that we have. And shouldn't they have an education? Shouldn't they have this? And I look at at, at that perspective where people start thinking that, well, these people will have better opportunities even if they lose that. And it's such a sort of a patronizing sort of attitude to, to, to say that, well, the way we're living is going to be better for them anyway. So, <laughs> so I, I'm wondering whether that attitude is something that you find that you often have to sort of combat and educate people about that it isn't about we, us deciding what's better for these people and allowing them to to be able to decide it for themselves. But I'm sure that that is sort of an attitude that you have to contend with periodically. And how do you, how do you, you know, how how do you combat that? Um, You know, it's it's a very, very funny thing because the truth of the matter is you really have to help people put themselves in the shoes of other people. And a great example of that is language. When you and I were born sometime in the 1950s or the 1960s, there were about 6,000 languages spoken around the world, and we have already lost half of those languages. And one of the things that's happened, of course, is that all languages are being replaced by English. English is a very easy language to learn. It's very globalized, and so everybody speaks English. And so people say, well, wouldn't it be easier if uh, people in the Kayapo live, I mean, spoke English? And exactly like you said, you know, who are we to make that determination? I mean, how come you and I are not forced to speak Kayapo? I mean, what if the rest of the world had to learn how to speak Kayapo? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, a, it's one of the biggest problems that we have, that we look at the world through the lens of our own experience and fail to see, you know, that there's many, many other ways of living and believing and seeing the world that are just as valid as ours. And every time that we lose cultural, you know, tradition, uh, language, we are really losing a part of our human history and we're becoming really homogeneous. And it's a sad thing, Hibarionis. There's, there's so much to learn from people that live in a different way. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're a mother yourself and, you know, your kids are growing up in sort of this Western, Western culture. Here you are as a photographer and as a scientist going out there and focusing on this, this whole idea of being able to support the you know the, the lives that these indigenous people are having, but at the same time you're living in a very Western culture, which is about buy, 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 more, more, more. Mm-hmm. And I wonder that you know you're like in both worlds. And but I wonder when you're raising children who are growing up in this culture, how, what kind of a challenge is that for you? Especially considering that you're you're going back and forth between both worlds, and you're trying to raise kids that have a sensitivity and understanding of of what really is going on in the world, and and how they have a choice in terms of how they perceive it and live in it. You know, it's a it, that's a very very good question, and I'm a very realistic parent, and so my children grew up in the public school system in the United States, and then they later went on to you know study abroad and have opportunities to have private education, but. They always had uh, the experience of traveling with with me and to see some of these things firsthand and to be confronted with things like real poverty, you know, to arrive in capital cities like Antananarivo and Madagascar where people are really poor and where you see children begging and living in the streets like Rio de Janeiro, you see a lot of that, or Mexico City. 
And so they, they've seen all of that. And I think it really expands your horizons and your understanding of the realities of the world that many, many children in countries like Canada and the United States don't really have an opportunity to see ever. I don't know how I did it, but all three of my children have this incredible sensitivity to the natural world. Uh, I think one of the things that I did right is that I never bought into the electronic game industry, so they never had the Playstations and the computers when they were younger. And I really kicked them out of the house to play outside. And so, you know, get dirty, go play in the mud, and come home when you get hungry. So all three of them have gone on to pursue careers either in conservation of nature, environmental studies, and one of my children is an anthropologist who's now making his first trip to the Kayapo uh, to work as a volunteer with these communities. But I never really indoctrinated them with it, you know. I, I always said to them, pay attention to what I'm doing because it's much more interesting than any video game or cartoon that you might be looking at. Well, you, you founded the International League of Conservation Photographers. Why did you create that organization? What, what was the need that you saw that, that led you to want to create it? It's, it's an interesting question because uh, I was part of the scientific community for so many years. And there's a lot of money. There's a lot of funding for scientific studies. There's a lot of foundations that have been created just with the purpose of uh, financing the work of scientists. But when it comes to the communications part of that science, to, to making science accessible to people, there really is not that much funding. So when I started working in photography and trying to raise money for my own projects, really, that were trying to communicate conservation challenges and scientific findings to the world, I was finding it really hard to, to raise funding. And so one of the things... I started realizing, is first of all, that I was not alone, that I was not the only photographer that had an, an interest in conservation. I was attending many of these photography forums, uh, conferences where photographers come together to share their work and to share technology. And I was raising the question, can we do anything for the environment with our work? And this is back in the early 90s. Uh, the answer for many of those photographers was no. You know, it hadn't even occurred to them. But there were a handful of people that were already doing amazing communications and conservation work through their imagery. And so I started creating a community with them. And one of the things that we decided to do together was to create a nonprofit organization that would make us eligible to raise funding for our work. And that was the first impetus, just to have um, the, the fiscal structure to raise money, but also to build a community that could speak with a common voice about our concerns for the natural world and to give more legitimacy to our work. And so one of the first things I did was to define conservation photography as something very different than just nature photography. So it's, it's uh, creating images with a larger purpose and it really caught on. And so today there's thousands of photographers that call themselves conservation photographers and that makes me very proud. In, and during that time, how did you see the communities out there change in terms of how they perceived and used photography, especially a lot of NGOs? Did, 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 you, did the organization and the work that you did help to sort of communicate even more so the, the importance of photography? I know they were probably already aware of it, but I wonder how, how the existence of the organization helped the, these NGOs and other organizations perceive the importance of photography. Well, one of the interesting things that I found out early on is because I worked within the conservation community is that the, the budgets dedicated to communications and especially to visual communications are really to this day very, very small. So communications was never one of the big priorities of these conservation groups. For the last 30 years, we have been 
dedicating a lot of the funding to science and to understanding what's happening to our natural world. We really have not dedicated the same type of interest and we have not put the same level of importance to communicating it. So one of the first jobs of the International League of Conservation Photographers was to start educating the conservation partners that we had on why really good photography matters. And the reason it matters is because we are bombarded with imagery every day from everywhere, you know, television, ads, print, uh, billboards, you name it. In order to capture somebody's attention, your photographs really need to be emotional and well-crafted and they need to be really, really something that catches your attention and keeps it. Back in those days, a lot of conservation groups and many to this day you know, think that taking a picture with a little snapshot camera from their back pocket or with their iPhone is enough to engage audiences. And once you start putting some metrics into how people really engage with photography, you can start making an argument for why it's worthwhile investing in the work of professionals who know what they're doing and who know how to communicate science to general audiences in a beautiful, emotional way. Well, you were president with the organization for seven years and you stepped down when you wanted to get you know, more jacked into your own photography book, because I'm sure that running an organization doesn't leave a whole lot of time. And tell me about that, that, that time and that decision to, to really reinvest yourself in your own, in your own photography. You know, it was, uh, it was interesting because I, I, in the beginning, it, it, you know, all these organizations have a slow start, but it picked up momentum, you know, and by, by the time we were five, six, seven years old, we were raising a lot of money and we had over a hundred photographers. And I found myself spending 95% of my time sitting in an office in Washington making other people's careers happen. And I was thinking, you know, I'm still young. I still have a hunger for this artistic outlet and I need to find a way to make my own photography aspirations happen. And so I felt at that time that the organization had a structure, it had a vision, and we could hire somebody else to run the organization so that I could step down and go back to pursue my career. And so today, the International League of Conservation Photographers has an incredibly capable uh, executive director, Alexandra Garcia. And she has been really good at carrying out my vision and helping build a, a stronger organization. And the ILCP is still doing great. It makes me very, very proud to be able to leave that legacy and at the same time to go back and pursue my own photographic career. And some of the new work that you've been producing over the last several years is working underwater, which I know you're really excited about. How did you get introduced to that and why is it so such an exciting part of what you're doing? You know, it's funny how every experience in your life brings you to a point where it all comes together. It was uh, my love of the ocean, my training professionally as a marine biologist, this opportunity to become a photographer, the fascination with indigenous and coastal, I mean, rural communities that all of a sudden made it clear that where I really want to work is in the coastal areas of the world. Uh, some of the most interesting, most remote, most vulnerable, most fragile people live on the coast. And to be able to bring the skills of an underwater photographer to uh, why the ocean and why intact coastal resources matter to coastal people is one of the things where I want to take my career. And it's something that very few people are documenting. So it's also an open field for me to explore. So recently I've been working with First Nations in the coast of British Columbia. There's about 40,000 people on this coast that depend on a healthy ocean for fishing. You know, how do you tell that story? How do you 
create that connection between humans and the ocean. Uh, it's such a foreign thing for so many people who are only able to stand on the beach to look at the, at the ocean or who are afraid of going in the water. And so I have the opportunity to bring those two stories together. And that truly excites me. I saw that video when um, when uh, orcas were being photographed, <laughs> yes. and that looked insane. And they had the uh, the whales that would come in. Well, you can describe it, but the orcas have a certain technique for procuring fish, and then they hit a little uninvited guest, and <laughs> it was just amazing. But if you could tell us a little bit about that, that was just fascinating. Um, that's an amazing uh, opportunity that we had. So uh, the. Uh, my my partner, Paul Nicklin, is a polar photographer and an underwater photographer. And so I've had the opportunity with him to travel to places that I would have never gone on my own, including the Arctic and Antarctica, and most recently to these northern fjords of uh, Norway. And what's happening there is very interesting because Norway is a country with a long history of fishing. And in the 1960s, 1970s, their herring fisheries collapsed because of overfishing. And so it's taken them 30 years for these herring fisheries to recover. And now, you know, you have these fjords where the fish are back and the herring are coming in. And when you put your mask and you put your head underwater, you see these immense schools of herring uh, that are the foundation of all of the food chain in the ocean, for not just in Norway, but in many places, including here in British Columbia. And so the fish, the, the, the herring, is what attracts the larger mammals. And in Norway, uh, it's, it's always been traditional for the orcas to enter the fjords in the winter to come and feed in the, on the herring. Now, when you think about orcas, uh, they have a lot of teeth and they're very large and people tend to be afraid of them. So in many places, I, I don't think a lot of people would have the well, the craziness to get in the water with an orca. I mean, after all, orcas eat dolphins and they eat sea lions and seals, so why wouldn't they eat humans, right? But in Norway, this opportunity to get in the water with orcas started maybe in the early 90s, and it was scientists who first started entering the water, and they realized that the orcas really are not interested in eating humans. And so the, this whole tourism has developed around the opportunity of swimming with orcas, and the orcas, what they're doing is they're traveling together in very tight family groups. They're very social, very intelligent animals, and they communicate underwater through echolocation, and they collaborate to corral the schools of herring. So when you go underwater and you look at what they do, I mean, they're manipulating these ball of fish, and they're swimming around it, and they're swimming underneath, and they're trying to push the fish against the surface so that the fish have nowhere to escape. And once they have them like that, then they slap them with their tails, and they start feeding on them. And it's a beautiful thing to watch an orca eat a small fish like a heron because they eat one fish at a time. You know, you would imagine that they would take big gulps, but mm. instead they just uh, gingerly bite the fish and they spit the head out. They don't eat it. So it's a beautiful thing to watch. At the same time, other big whales are starting to come into the fjords to take advantage of this opportunity to feed, and humpbacks are among them. And humpbacks, unlike, unlike orcas, don't have echolocation. So it's a dangerous thing to be in the water when these large whales uh, come in onto a ball of fish because they really cannot see, they cannot tell that you're there. And so it would be easy to get trampled by one of these whales. And it's a very exciting thing to do, Ibarionics. It's uh, one of the most thrilling, most emotional things that I've done to be underwater face to face with an orca. 
when you when you go in the water and this large intelligent animal makes a U turn to come and take a closer look at you and you look at this animal and you see their eye and you make a connection, you know, they're looking at you trying to elucidate what you're doing. You know, I've never experienced anything like that. Your your, your work is is beautiful and but I think one of the things I, I so appreciate about it is that you know, it's it's an effort to make to make change, to make things better, not just uh, for you know one or two people, but for entire communities and families. And I'm wondering, you've probably had many opportunities to to feel gratified from the work that you've done, but can you share one particular uh, body of work or, or story where you felt like incredibly gratified that you're doing what you're doing? Um, yes, I mean, and that would have to be here in British Columbia. Through the International League of Conservation Photography, we learned a lot about how to use images to engage media, to engage uh, stakeholders, uh, the people that depend on resources, uh, government officials, influential people, decision makers, on the process of conservation. And conservation of a certain area is can be a very politicized process. You know, in a place like the coast of British Columbia, which is very, very rich, in terms of, of timber, you know, it's a huge rainforest. It has a lot of wildlife like uh, bears. And we have these incredible salmon runs on which a lot of people depend. But there's also industrial interest coming to here. So uh, one of the things that was happening is there was going to be a huge pipeline built into this coast from the Alberta tar sands. And then uh, there's going to be a tanker terminal built where oil tankers were going to pick up the crude and take it to China and they were going to be traveling through the very, very delicate and dangerous fjords on the coast of British Columbia. So the danger of an oil spill was something that was very, very real for the communities here. Through the International League of Conservation Photographers and with the support of National Geographic, we were able to put out a huge body of communication. So there, we, there was a story that was done by my partner, uh, Paul Nicklin, on the Kermode bear, the spirit bear which is a fascinating animal that only lives here. It's a black bear that's pure white. It has a, a, a gene, a mutating gene that makes it a white black bear. And so Paul did a story on National Geographic, and then I brought in 10 other photographers to document this area, and we were able to turn all those beautiful photographs to the media and also to the First Nations communities that live on this coast. And this was a fight that involved many, many people, not just us as photographers. There's been scientists and many, many NGOs involved in this. But after 20 years of fighting, 85% of the Great Bear Rainforest has finally been protected in perpetuity. So no more logging is going to be taking place here, no more industrial activities, and it's a huge, huge win. So in the last couple of weeks, weeks traveling up and down the coast and talking to, to the coastal First Nations here, there's a huge sense of excitement that finally their beautiful rainforest has been protected, and now we're starting to ask ourselves, can we extend that protection to the ocean? Can we make the Great Bear Sea an extension of the Great Bear Rainforest and ask for its protection as well? And so having the opportunity to participate in these long-term conservation projects and see victory and see how conservation benefits everybody is one of the most gratifying things that I've been able to do. That's wonderful. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? <laughs> I would have to recommend my partner, uh, Paul Necklin. He 
he's a very interesting person because he has a fantastic background. He grew up in an indigenous community in the Arctic. So he was one of a very small group of white people living in an Inuit community. And having that opportunity to live, not, to grow up not, not just in a very remote part of the world, but also a very harsh one when it comes to uh, weather and circumstances. And to be able to live with indigenous people really has turned them into the artist and the communicator that he is today. And so Paul has dedicated his life to um, showcasing the wonders of the polar regions in a way that very few people get to experience them. And uh, he, too, is a conservation photographer, so he's dedicated a lot of his work to helping people understand why climate change, especially in particular, has such a huge effect on the polar ecosystems and on, on the people that live in, in the Arctic. Uh, so Paul, I mean, he's one of the best underwater photographers. He's the recipient of so many awards and recognitions for the artistry of his work. And um, he certainly has one of the most interesting and successful Instagram accounts of any photographer ever. So <laughs> I would recommend Paul Nicklin. Great. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, Paul and I have started a new nonprofit organization called Sea Legacy. And, you know, once again, trying to use our skills as photographers, videographers, communicators to help bring the imperative of conserving the ocean to general audiences. So Sea Legacy is dedicated to using photography to protect the ocean. So you can go to www.sealegacy.org. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christina. It was a real honor and, and a pleasure to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. I so appreciate it, Ibarionics, and thanks for interviewing me on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a huge difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. I'd like to thank Zioranza1986, Ding777, JJ Marfa, and Alan Flower, who recently posted five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making donations of any amount to The Candid Frame using our PayPal account. You'll find a link to this in the show notes and The Candid Frame website at thecandidframe.com. Thanks to Jan Laskowski, Chuck Hazer, Walid Alzuher, David Urena, Robert Wilk, and Michelle D., each of whom has taken the time recently to make donations to the show. It means a lot. Thank you. To access our complete archive of interviews, Download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>